again. <clears throat> it's not like we talked about it or anything. <laughs> we did. He asked me. And I said, do some songs about the blood. So you have a handout. Betty must be teaching, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, amen. Well, John 16, verses um, 7 through 11 tells us that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict us of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and that the ruler of this world has already been judged. Amen? But that points out to us, if he has to convict us of these things, it points out to us that we as human beings have three problems we can't do anything about. If you were born a human, you were born with three problems. The other day I had to do something on the internet, I had to fill something out and ask me if I was a robot. (laughs) And I had to prove that I was a human being by saying I'm not a robot. So if you're a robot, you may not have these three problems. But if you are a human being, you are born with three problems. First, you have a problem with God. Because God says you are under sin. And I have some of these on your handout. Some will have to turn to our Bibles and look up. Isaiah 59.2 says that, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is a major problem because we were created as human beings to have intimate relationship with our Father. But sin has made a separation, and there's no way we can fix that problem. The second problem we have is with ourselves. Because we are children of God, we need to be righteous. We need to be righteous as he is righteous. We need to live the way he created. You know, he didn't create us to be sinners. He created us to be righteous creatures. Hebrews 10.22 calls this an evil conscience. It's a sense of knowing that we are not perfect as he created us to be. A knowing that we don't measure up. That God is perfect and we must be perfect, but we have an inability to bridge that gap. And that gives us a great identity crisis because we're not supposed to be sinners. (laughs) We weren't created for that, but we are. The third problem we have, if we are a human being and not a robot, is we have a problem with Satan because Satan knows our first problem and he knows our second problem and he starts accusing us. You have a problem. You have a problem with God. You have a problem with yourself. And he is right. He's correct in that accusation. So how that then creates great need in our lives, doesn't it? We are born with these problems, and we have a need to fix that problem. <clears throat> we, need a, we need restored fellowship with God. Our guilt has to be dealt with, that guilty conscience. And the attack of the enemy has to be met, and his accusations dealt with. All religions that exist are trying to bridge that gap somehow. They've come up with some way to reconnect with whatever they consider God to be. They've found a way, they've created a series of rules and things to try to improve themselves and become righteous or good enough. All religion comes out of this need, this need to solve these three problems. But if we know the one true living God, he says, you can't solve these problems. 
You can't find your way through any work or any religion to reach God and make yourself acceptable. The only answer, the one and only answer to these three needs is the blood of Jesus. So thank you, Kyung, for setting this up tonight. We've sung it. We believe it, but sometimes we just don't get it. We sing it, but it's like, how? How does that blood do all these things? How does that blood 2,000 years ago accomplish these things? I know for years I struggled. I mean, I believed it, but I didn't know why I believed it. I couldn't logic it out. So I'm going to try to connect us tonight. Some of you have heard this um, teaching in Brazil. Rick always asked me to teach it in Brazil, and he said, well, since you're only going to be here a couple more weeks, Betty, why don't you hit him with a Brazil teaching? So I said, well, the blood is a major Brazil teaching, so let's do that. So we're going to start in Leviticus. I know you love Leviticus, you know. I'm going to read my Bible through. Genesis, Exodus, I'm going to Leviticus. (laughs) That's where it starts to break down, right? We're in Leviticus um, 16. That's why you get a picture Bible. Ah, a picture Bible. Over in Leviticus 23, God goes through all the seven feasts that he established for Israel to keep. But in 16, he is giving very, very specific directions how the feast of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is to be observed. And he gives Moses all the steps, all the things that have to happen on the Day of Atonement. Um, He tells him that there's going to be two goats, The first one is called the scapegoat. The scapegoat would be chosen by lot. Then the priest would lay his hands on that goat. He would confess the sins of Israel. This was for the national blessing of Israel, so that Israel could be under God's blessing for one more year, so that God wouldn't wipe them out, (laughs) so they could be considered cleansed and in ability to have relationship with him for one more year. So the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat, confess the sin of Israel. Then they'd take some young men and they'd lead him out from Jerusalem and they'd start out into the wilderness, out towards Jericho, and they'd go through the wadis and they'd go through the mountains and they'd go through the wilderness of Jericho until that goat was so lost he didn't have a chance of finding his way home. And that was a picture that God sends our sin away. He puts it on the scapegoat and he sends it so far away it can never be found again. But then there was the Lord's goat, and certain things had to happen with the Lord's goat on the Day of Atonement. So let's read about that in verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, which is inside the Holy of Holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it 
and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. And with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. <clears throat> so many steps here that have to be followed. You notice he sprinkles seven times, which is God's number for completion or perfection, meaning it's a total covering. Also, no one can enter except the high priest. No one else is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. In fact, tradition tells us that they, he would wear a robe with bells on, and they would put a rope around his waist in case he got zapped by the holiness of God and they had to pull him out because no one else was allowed to go in there. And all of this points to, to Jesus, to Jesus. Only the high priest could go in there. This was a transaction between the high priest and God for the people away from the eyes of those um, who would benefit from it. No one was able to see him do this. They had to trust in him that he's doing this on their behalf. You beginning to see it? The blood is presented not to man. It's presented only to God. That was foreshadowed at the Feast of the Passover. If you go back into Exodus, much more exciting book than Leviticus, you know the whole story of the Passover and how God gave very specific instructions how the Passover was to be observed. And in verse 13, it says, And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God said, I'm looking for the blood. Put it on the doorpost of your, your, um, your house. Go outside, put it on the, on the door, shut the door, go back inside, and I'll look for the blood. He didn't say, put out a welcome mat, hang a wreath on the door, do something to make it more attractive. He said, I'm not looking for anything you do except the blood. You're inside trusting that that blood will save you. And that was God's Passover. He would pass over anyone who had the blood. Okay? So um, <clears throat> it's presented to God. It tells us the blood is for God. The blood is the only thing that satisfies God. Don't go out and decorate your door. That's not what he's looking for. He only wants to see the blood. That's the only thing that satisfies him. Why does the blood satisfy God? That's the thing I couldn't wrap my head around. You know? Leviticus, again, 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This is where Pastor Kyung started to preach my message tonight because he said God's justice has to be served. You know, why does something have to die? Why can't God just say, it's okay, I understand you're humans, it's okay. Why does life have to be given? Why does something have to die? It's because his justice must be served. God is love. 
God is mercy, but God is also holy and just. And actually think about it. An unjust judge is not righteous. You, we wouldn't want an earthly judge to just excuse a rapist, would we? And say, oh, it's okay. People do that. We want, wouldn't want an earthly judge to just excuse some kind of horrible pedophile and say, oh, that's okay, that happens. We want him to be righteous. We want him to judge what is wrong, right? So we want God to be just. We want his holiness, not just the love side, but the just side. But there's nothing I can do to merit God's justice. There's nothing I can do to appease him. He's too holy. He's too just. So I have this problem. I can't even die for my own sin. And many religions practice that. You know, the Muslims have an honor-killing thing that if someone has sinned, they'll, especially women, (laughs) they'll kill them, hoping that that would remove the dishonor. But that doesn't do it. That's not going to save the woman or save the family if they kill the woman. Um, Sorry to tell you, but in the deep, deep reaches of the Mormon faith, there's also honor killings. They will kill someone in order to hopefully save their soul. But I can't die, say, okay, God, I'm sorry I've sinned. I'll die so that you'll forgive me. Because my blood is not pure. I'm not an acceptable sacrifice, even for myself. Neither is a lamb, neither is a goat, neither is a bull. Okay? The only blood that satisfies is the blood of Jesus. He himself has to pay the price. That's where God says in Psalm 51, 16, I don't want your sacrifices. Sacrifice I have not desired. Stop trying to sacrifice yourself. Trying to st- stop trying to sacrifice this and that and this and that, hoping that that will appease my justice. I haven't desired that, that you do these works, of even the most sacrificial thing possible, even giving your own life. Get out of that mentality because that's not what I desire. Is this making sense? Okay, based on what I just told you now about the Day of Atonement and the high priest and how he had to do things very methodically and specifically, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10 and see the correlation and how Jesus fits in now. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow, of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, meaning the year of atonement, the day of atonement, year after year after year had to be done, In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then go with me to verse 8. After the saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. 
Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he's saying here the blood that makes atonement is the blood that's in the life of Jesus. It's not just any blood. Jesus' life, as he came and became a human being, his life was in his blood. He came to pour out that blood for us. God offered everything he had in the life of Jesus. So to God, you go back and you look at all the sacrifices, sacrifices, sacrifices in the Old Testament, and if you really look at it correctly, we think of priests going around in these white robes and praising God and blowing shofars. No, they were butchers. They were slaughtering animals all day long. Just blood, 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 blood. But that blood didn't save Israel. That blood didn't atone. What it did was it kept Israel for one more year until the real blood could be shed. I look, like, I look at it like a credit card. <clears throat> Who likes to go shopping? <laughs> Linda. Linda, let's say you go into Kohl's and you find a sale and you buy a bunch of new clothes and you put it on your credit card and you come home and say, look what I purchased. But you haven't paid for it yet because in about three weeks you're going to get a bill. <laughs> then you have to pay for it, right? So I look at the blood, blood, blood in the Old Testament like a credit card. It purchased one more year of blessing, one more year that Israel was um, spared God's wrath, but it hasn't pay- was, wasn't paid for yet. It just covered it like the credit card. When Jesus came, his life was in his blood, and he shed it, and all sin passed, and future is now paid for. So the same blood that saved you and me after the cross is the blood that saved Moses and Aaron and David and Daniel and Ezekiel and Elisha. They trusted in the blood of the bulls and goats just to hold the place, to cover it until the real blood could pay it. Does that make sense? The cross, always remember that. It works backwards and forwards. Isaiah 53.10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Pleased means that's the only offering God was pleased with. He said, I don't want all your sacrifices. This is the offering that pleases me, that satisfies me, that fulfills my justice. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. God sees the blood, and he sees it as the highest price ever paid for anything in the history of the universe. And when did Jesus begin to pour out his blood for us? Kyung helped me record yesterday about the Garden of Gethsemane, um, when in, our, in the Footsteps of Jesus series that we're doing, he began to pour it out in the garden when he prayed, God, Father, I don't know if I can drink this cup. 
Oh, Father, is there, is there any other way? And he sweat drops of blood in his agonizing decision to go through with the cross. As he made that decision to go through with it, that's when he first began to pour out his blood, his life for us. Then came the beating by the soldiers, the, the scourging, as they ripped his back open. They ripped his back open. They ripped him to pieces till he was unrecognizable as a man. Just took the skin off of him. Then they pulled out his beard. They put on a crown of thorns that pierced his, his flesh and blood ran down his face. And finally, they put him on the cross and nailed him to the cross. He hardly had any blood left in him by the time that happened. <clears throat> and as he hung on that cross and all of his blood just drained out of his body, what was the last thing he said? He said a word that is translated in Greek, te telestai. It's a Greek business term that means the debt is paid in full. If, uh, if in the Greek manuscript, that was the word that was used, te telestai. When someone, two businessmen, sealed a deal and a debt was paid to a businessman, the man would proclaim te telestai to the debtor, meaning paid in full. God offered everything he had in the life of his son. So he's pleased with that blood because it represents the life of his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. The problem is we try to wrap our minds around it, but it's so much bigger than your mind. You must simply by faith accept God's value of his son's blood. You must believe the, the blood of his son is precious to God because he says it is. Sometimes our sin seems to be so terrible. Sometimes our sense of condemnation and accusation about our own sin seems to be so big that it seems like it's bigger than the blood of Jesus. Like, oh, how can you ever forgive me, God? This is too big. But if God says, I'm only looking for the blood, I'm not looking for your goodness, I'm not looking for how big or small your sin is, I'm looking for the blood on your life. When God says, when I see that, I'm satisfied, I will pass over. I will accept the blood of my son on your life. If God is satisfied with the blood, then we must be satisfied also. That set me free when I realized this years ago that I was just continuing to feel like, how can God forgive me? How can God forgive me? And I had to come to this place to say, if God says it's enough, then it's enough. Right? Who am I to argue with the greatest sacrifice ever given in the history of the universe. Now, and how can we get saved so easily? You know, people throw around this term, cheap grace. Oh, confess your sins and God will forgive you. And people get upset about that. They say, well, that just sounds like cheap grace. Hey, the reason we can be forgiven so easily by just confessing and asking, it's easy for us because it would cost everything for him. It cost everything. He did it all. Like the song said, he did it all. So the least we can do is believe and appreciate what that cost him. Amen? Instead of trying to somehow 
add to it ourselves. We should pay the debt, but we cannot. God shouldn't have to pay the debt, but he had to. So who are we to say that's not enough? It's not our system, it's God's system. All right? Good? Okay, so that's only the first problem. The second problem is our guilt. Even knowing all this, singing about it, we still walk around. Feeling, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Right? The church is full of defeated Christians still living under condemnation and feeling like they're not good enough and trying to do something about it, especially making up rules for themselves, becoming legalistic and making up rules. So look at Hebrews 10 again, 19 through 22. This is our second problem. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That evil conscience is like there's something between me and God. I was created for fellowship with God. That's what he made me for, to love him and, and have him love me back. Whatever profession you're in, whatever you do, that's wonderful, but that's not why you, what you were created for. You were created to be a lover of God and a recipient of his love. But the temple had a veil, right? So that you couldn't get in to God's presence and have that fellowship. And that's what we have. We, we have this veil. Like, I know I'm sinful, so I know I'm excluded from fellowship with God. And this is for another day, maybe next week, but I spent years and years in church doing that, wanting to worship but feeling like God didn't want my worship because I was too, too bad. So I would, hold, I would be outside the veil. I would stay outside the veil, not go in. <laughs> so an evil conscience is, I know I'm sinful. So therefore, I can't just have fellowship with God that I was created for. So we have to ask ourselves a question. What is your measure? What is your basis of approaching God? It seems like some days you can and some days you can't, right? But what is your basis, your bottom line, about how you, whether you can or cannot approach God? Is it how you feel about yourself? Is it whether you had a good day or a bad day? Is it about your spiritual attainment? Oh, I didn't used to be, but now I think God likes me more. So I think I've attained a place where I can, he can talk to me. You know, I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I gave food to the poor. I didn't get angry today. Um, I even fasted last week. (laughs) Are you trying to get into the presence of God by the blood or by something else? By something you're doing? Because from, if you heard me in the first part, there is no other basis we dare enter his presence except covered in the blood. Then we, we should, we'll be hit by lightning, by his holiness. The only way we can approach him is if we are covered in the blood. Leviticus 16, only the high priest could go in with the blood. Exodus 12, the blood was supposed to be on the door, shut the door, Let it be. 
Let it do its work. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can take away from it. The blood is what God requires. So it isn't based on whether you had a good day or a bad day, good week or a bad week. A clear, a clear conscience is not based on my performance, my feeling, because we're going to have good days and bad days, and that goes up and down. To have a steady relationship with God, we have to decide, this is my only plea. <laughs> this is my only plea. It's only by what Jesus has done. So, um, you know, Paul writes in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. What is righteousness? If I teach next week, that's the subject I'm going to teach on. What is righteousness? But is righteousness having no sin? If you're a human being, you're going to sin. Is it having no problems? Is it not feeling bad about yourself? No. Righteousness, sorry, comes by faith when you trust in the blood. It means you have to take hold by faith of what the blood has done for you and say, that's my only plea. And that's what makes me righteous. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that wonderful to not have to be examining yourself every day to see how you're doing, to see if you can reach God? It doesn't matter if you're doing wonderful or bad. It still takes the blood for you to have relationship with God and bridge that gap. Doesn't that free you to stop analyzing yourself, trying to improve yourself? You might actually get somewhere if you stop that and just trust that you are righteous and God welcomes you into his presence because you trust in the blood. You might actually start getting somewhere instead of being a constant, you know, just introspective Christian who's always measuring yourself. Man, that's a, that's a problem we have. And who am I thinking about when I do that? Me, 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 instead of going, thank you for your blood, Jesus. I can come to God because of your blood. Thank you. I don't have to think about myself all the time. It's freeing. Amen, amen. You reach God your way or his way. Okay? <laughs> and that the way he's provided is the blood of his son. <clears throat> the blood is more powerful than the law. You can't keep the law. The blood is way more powerful than the law. Okay, I'm going to wrap up here. Our third problem is Satan knows we have the first problem and the second problem, so he's going to try and get in there and mess us up. And Revelation 12.10 says that he has a full-time job. His full-time job, Revelation 12.10 says, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. 24-7, he has a full-time job, and that's accusing us. And it's the most dangerous thing for Christians because we resist him when he's trying to rob us of our peace and our joy, when he's trying to kill and destroy, when he's trying to tempt us, we say, oh, you know, I don't want the devil to do this. But when he accuses us, we go, yeah, you're right, because he is right. And we say, that's right. And, you know, again, I'll talk about this next week, hopefully, but 
We even help him. We go, oh yeah, you're, I, I am terrible. Oh, I am horrible. Oh, Satan, you must be tired of beating on me. Here, let me take that rubber hose and do it to myself for a while. Give you a break, right? We join right in. We join right in to his accusation. And we give him a legal right to our lives because we agree with him instead of what God has said. We agree with the devil more than what God has said. And we give him a legal right. Instead of trusting in the blood, we say, okay, I'll let you just tell me this stuff all day long, Satan, uh, and I'll, I'll believe it. So how are we dealing with Satan? With our own way or with the blood? First John, First John 1 John 1.7. You know this one by heart. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from some of our sin. What does my translation say? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from little sins. No. All sin. All sin. And it also talks here about the light as God is in the light. So that gives us a glimpse into heaven. Heaven where God resides is no darkness. It's all light. Everything's out in the open. Nothing is hidden in darkness, right? Right? So picture that scene. God is light. Heaven is light. And we just read in Revelation that Satan is there. If you think that Satan and God can't occupy the same place, you're wrong. Satan goes before God and accuses us. That's borne up in Job, where Satan went to heaven, went to God, and had a conversation and said, hey, what about your servant Job? He only worships you because he's got such a good life. Remember? Satan goes right before God, and he accuses us right to God. So if God is in the light and Satan is coming in accusing, how does God deal with that accusation? God is, Satan is trying, Randall, to tell God that you're not a good enough Christian. He's trying to tell God, David, Nutter, that you're not, you don't measure up. How does God handle that? Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to think? How, what does God do with that accusation that he's hearing all day long? Because we might take a tip of how God handles it and say, oh, that's not the way I handle it. (laughs) Maybe I should handle it the same way God handles it. Here's how God handles it. God says, oh, David Nutter, yeah, I hear your accusations against him, Satan. Yeah, Yeah, I can even agree with some of them. But you see, the blood is over him. So, you know, his big sins, his little sins, his gray sins, his white sins, the sins he's not even aware of. Um, conscious, unconscious, the sins he remembers, the sins he's forgotten. All sin, the blood is over that. So I don't really see any of that. All I see is the blood. God points to the blood. If God, who sees everything in our lives, because he is light and nothing is hidden, if he sees every single thing in your life, every weakness in your life, and he says, yeah, I guess I know that's there, but really, all I see is the blood on Linda. Because she trusts in the blood. So I don't really... See, your sin is not that big of a problem for God. Our sin is visible to him, but it's not that big of a problem because he says the blood is sufficient for it. It's us that have to say, oh, my sin isn't that big of a problem. God can take care of that sin. Again, we'll get out of our sin a lot faster if we trust in that instead of keeping on trying to not sin. 
Is that making sense? We should deal with Satan the same way God does, and life would get a lot less stressful. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? <clears throat> so Satan, you know, in this, in this scenario, in this light thing, God comes, Satan comes to God, and he points to John Williamson, and God says, yep, I see that. And then he points to the blood. And Satan has to slip away with his tail between his legs. It's the, it's the answer, it's the ultimate answer against which Satan has no appeal. He can't argue with that blood. God answers every challenge against Catherine Williams. When Satan can come and accuse all day long, he says, oh, she's got the blood. And Satan has to go, darn, there's nothing I can do about that blood. So how about we begin to answer Satan's accusation when he points to our failures and sins the way God answers them? Yeah, you're right, Satan, but I've got the blood. Amen? Amen. So, um, but no, what we do, what we do is we go round and round. Oh, I know. I've got to do better. I'll never measure up. Okay, I'm going to start fasting eight days a week. Okay, I'm going to start getting up at four in the morning and read my Bible for five hours. Somehow, somehow I have to make it. Well, at least I'm not as bad as some people I know. You know, we do all that in, our, in a, trying to fight the enemy's accusation instead of just saying, the blood, Satan, the blood, the blood, the blood. And then Satan gets a legal right because he wears you. He will win the argument every time because he never gets tired of it. So how about beginning to... And he wins the argument by getting us to look at ourselves instead of look at the blood. He wants us to sit and look and inter- instead of saying, praise God for the blood. I don't have to listen to you because of the blood. Instead of us looking to that and glorifying God, he gets us to get all introspective. And so then he's won. He's got a right to harass you. Amen? Derek Prince, one of my favorite Bible teachers ever in the world, said this, one drop of Jesus' blood is more powerful than all of Satan's kingdom. One drop (laughs) than all of Satan's kingdom. Okay, so we're going to be Methodists tonight, and we're going to do a liturgy. It's been a long time since most of us have done that. But you have a prayer, and I remember we said, that the blood of the lamb and the word, well, we didn't. It was the verse after. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So can we pray this prayer? prayer. Okay. It's important to do this because you need to retrain your mind. Your mind just goes in these same ruts of you start sinking into the, the rut of the condemnation or, or whatever. So by speaking this out loud, you begin to speak it to your soul. You speak it to the demonic realm. You speak it to God. So it's a prayer and it's a proclamation. And you can't just work it all out in your head. Some things need to be spoken out loud to change your heart and your mind and your thinking. So this is a tool that I offer 